A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Those of you who have a keen eye on social media will realise that there is currently an expedition underway to try and locate the remains of Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance. Launched a century ago and lost three years later in the Weddell Sea in the Southern Ocean, where she had become trapped in ice during Shackleton's Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. You can follow the progress of the expedition by following the hashtag Endurance22, and I wish them all the luck in the world. As I sit at my desk to record this, they have arrived safely a couple of miles from the Endurance's estimated position and have successfully deployed the remote underwater vehicle, which will scan the seabed. To find out more about the challenges they face and the remarkable history behind this ship, I spoke with the excellent David Mearns, a professional shipwreck hunter who has been involved in researching the location of Shackleton's Endurance for almost 20 years. Here is David. David, thank you very much indeed for speaking to me today. My pleasure, Sam. So tell me a little bit about your background. You've got one of the best CVs I think I've ever read. Well, it's an unusual one, uh, mainly because uh, there's no sort of direct path to becoming a, a shipwreck hunter, which is the main thing that I do and have been doing for, for most of my professional career. But I actually started as a in science. I have degrees in marine science and marine geology, and but I didn't want to pursue uh, a career in academia. And essentially, uh, as, as part of my graduate work, I... Um, became very proficient in the operation of geophysical tools, ma mainly used for the characterization of the seabed. And those are the same tools that you can use to locate lost objects on the seabed, shipwrecks and planes and things like that. And that led me into wanting to go into the offshore industry. Uh, and that really where it started. And uh, my first job in America I uh, worked for a company that was a contractor to the U.S. Navy uh, doing worldwide search and recovery for them. And, and that's where it began. What was the, the first historic wreck you discovered? Um, well, I didn't discover it, but I remember the first historic one that I had to do when I was based in America is um, uh, uh, on this ironclad um, um, ship called the Monitor. It's a very famous ship in American mm -hmm. history. There was a battle between two uh, ironclads and uh, the Monitor and the Merrimack. 
during the, I think it's Civil War time, yeah. And yeah. Um, this ironclad ship was under tow off the coast of North Carolina and it sank. And my company, on behalf of the Navy, were conducting investigations of it. And at one time I was sent out there with a side scan to go and relocate the position because we wanted to go back and do some more investigative work of it. So even though it wasn't something I I um, I, I found or discovered or were involved, I just had to go relocate it. So so that was probably my start with historic ships on the uh, on the monitor. Well, well done. What a wonderful one to, um, to to see, even if it was kind of on screen and then you you you, you sort of see the magic magic of it unfold. Uh, you found HMS Hood, though. Well, yes, I did do that, and and uh, <laughs> and 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 the hood is obviously a very important ship to find, and that's one of the reasons why we wanted to find it uh, was to 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 tell the story of the battle of both Hood and Bismarck, but tell you know the two story from different sides. Yeah, yeah. And what about this uh, a Portuguese one from fifteen o two, fifteen o three, part of the Vasco da Gama expedition? That seems like a wonderful discovery. Yeah, and that. That was a lot of fun, and that's that's reason why I wanted to do it because it was so so enjoyable. Um, the The location was, um, I mean, it's a kind of expedition or project that people would pay good money to be part of. Because how could you not want to be diving in a remote location in a remote highland, far from far from land, out in the Indian Ocean, very clear, warm waters, beautiful. Um, fishes and 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 flora and fauna in in the area that we were we were working but also at the same time uh every single day every single dive you're discovering uncovering and recovering um objects that had been lost for 500 years that were had a fairly direct connection to one of the most famous explorers in Vasco da Gama so it was a it was a great opportunity and a real privilege to do that. Yeah, my um, experience of anything even remotely like that was finding some um, Ming china on the shore of Lamu Island in uh, East Africa, where there was a sort of rumours of a, a, a Chinese treasure ship going ashore there from the Middle Ages. That was a, that was extraordinary. The local fishermen said, "You come come this way. There's definitely Chinese pottery." And as soon as you get your eye in, I was suddenly picking it up left, right, and centre. It was everywhere. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's. Imagine doing that in in five six meters of water, while humpback <laughs> whales are swimming around and dolphins are coming to visit you every day. That that's what it was like working in Oman. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Now let's talk about um, Shackleton, um, and what's going on at the minute with the uh, expedition to go and try and find his his vessel. You've been on the hunt for this ship for some time, haven't you? Where did it all begin? Well, it it began for me back in. 2002, um, after I completed Hood and Bismarck, I was looking for the next challenge. And and to me, the, the ultimate challenge in terms of shipwreck discovery at the time would have been um, Endurance. It's one of the most famous ships uh, to have been lost that hasn't been discovered yet. There's a There were a handful of other ones, but we're sort of, the community is sort of ticking them off the list. And... Um, and, and and so that's when it began. But I, I do have to preface our whole discussion is that the, this, this search that is ongoing now, I am not involved with that at all. All my work t- 
to date has been um, uh, research. Yeah, yeah. Well, what are the challenges of? Well, let's just tell the story briefly about about Shackleton's endurance and what happened to the vessel for those who don't know it. Well, God, it's a, it's an epic of a story, and we'll blow away our, our our time on this podcast. But and I think your audience probably knows it pretty well. But but in in summary, um, uh, the, the Shackleton was trying to achieve the last great. Um, achievement of 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 Antarctic uh, exploration, which was crossing of the entire continent, and he went down with a ship with twenty seven men. They got the idea was to have one ship on one side of Antarctica, another ship on the other side of Antarctica, with caches of food and fuel and all sorts of things, and then he would take a sledging party all the way across, and uh, and his ship that uh, came through the um, uh, the peninsula side through the Weddell Sea, called Endurance, which he owned, uh, got beset in the ice. Um, it drifted for many months, and then it was crushed and sank. The men had to decamp to the ice. They spent several more months, 28 men literally living on floating ice that is about two meters thick, up until the point that it goes far enough north, north that it starts to melt. And then they're in, in the water. Well, they had three lifeboats. They, they camped to the lifeboats. They got to Elephant Island. Shackleton then, with a handful of men, sailed with Frank Worsley, the captain of Endurance, on this very small open boat called the James Caird to South Georgia Island. You know, each and every one of these steps is like uh, a, a remarkable um, survival story in and of itself. But then once they get to Elephant I- uh, South Georgia, he's got to cross from one side of the island to the other side of the island at a trek that takes three days in an area that's never been charted before. Nobody's ever done it before. And they don't have any equipment. Uh, and the crew were basically, you know, they're more or less knackered to begin with. But he ultimately makes it. And then it doesn't end there. He's got to go back and rescue his men that are left on Elephant Island, have been there for months. And he, he, he it, uh, finally, on the fourth attempt with a ship, they were able to get all the men back and everybody survived. Nobody died. Uh, you know, the injuries were minor. Um, so it, it goes down in, in history as um, the most uh, incredible, greatest survival story of all time. Uh, Because if you string together each and every one of these things and how all these men survived under Shackleton's leadership, it's one of the greatest stories uh, ever told. And, And that's because, you know, finding that ship will be so special for so many people because so many people connect to Shackleton, they connect to the expedition, they connect to that period of uh, uh, heroic um, age of exploration in Antarctica. They connect to this idea of this uh, remarkable leader, his leadership qualities. So um, almost anybody who you tell this story to, or it's touched some way, uh, are fascinated by it. They become an instant Shackleton fans. and uh, And that's why people like me, you know, would like to find his shipwreck. And the people who are out there who are, you know, will be attempting very, very soon to find it uh, and, and, to, and, to, and then, you know, tell that story to a new audience, but to 
um, an existing audience. Yeah. Well, let's break it down. So, I mean, first of all, do we know where it sank? Well, I, that's the question everybody asks. Do you know where it is? And I like to say, of course, we don't know where it is, because if we did know it is where it was, <laughs> then it wouldn't be a search. <laughs> we have an idea where it is. OK, we do not search in the ocean for X's on charts. You know, this sort of classic idea that you find a, a chart with an X on it. You can go to right to that location and the wreck will be there. We search boxes, areas, because while even if you did have an X, which means that somebody has recorded the position, like in, which we, in, it, it does happen in that case, in this that, instance, isn't it? That's right. We have a position from Frank Worsley, the captain, which has been corroborated and verified and a lot of analysis into that. That position is inherently inaccurate. There are uncertainties. And what you have to do is break down those uncertainties and model the amount of error and all those different sources of error. That tells you that the position is accurate to plus or minus 10 miles or 20 miles or whatever. Once you get an idea of the inherent error in both latitude and longitude, then you can prescribe a box, a define a box around that position that covers all these potential errors, and that's what you go out and search. And you can never be 100% certain that your box is correct, that the X that you have is correct, um, but you do the best you can to give yourself the highest probability of success. That's the key thing. You want to mm -hmm. maximize your chance of finding it and minimize the risks. And the position we know, that, that was taken by Sextant? Yes, it's an interesting situation in that during the expedition and uh, and also while they were, um, you know, in the ship but working on the ice, they realized that actually using a theodolite was a better tool for taking their daily positions, their daily observations than a sextant. But I believe, and there's no record of whether they used a theodolite that day or a sextant, I believe I have a photograph of that period that would indicate it's more likely that Worsley used the sextant on that, on not the day it sank, but the days after it sank. And that's a key part of the error. We do not have a position on November 21st, 1915, the day the ship actually sank, because it was too cloudy. We do not even have a position for the days prior, the, the 20th and the 19th, because the, 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 the it was cloudy. You could not see the stars or the sun to be able to take an observation. The first opportunity they got was on the 22nd. They were able to take their noon sights on the 22nd. So there's a 19 hour period during which the ship is in the ice. Um, um, well, a 19 hour period during after the ship sank that the ice flow is still moving. So the position that they're taking is relative to where they are in the ice flow. It has moved in the 19 hours after the ship sank. And you have to um, compensate for that in her, in uncertainty as well. And all of these uncertainties, and there's, a, there's quite a few of them. You've got to look at all of them independently, model them, sum them, and that gives you the size of the search box.
And what about the depth of the water there? I mean, do we is it is it an acceptable depth for us to actually be able to go and see what's down there, or is it sort of incomprehensibly deep? No, it's it's deep enough, uh, but it's not incomprehensibly deep. We've it's about the average of the shipwrecks that I found. It's three thousand meters, which in most in in most walks of life is like my God, that's deep. But actually, you know, we've been much deeper before. We have found much deeper shipwrecks, um, and we do have the instruments to be able to reach that kind of depth. Obviously, it increases the price tag of these expeditions, but the depth is not the challenging aspect of it. It is actually, it's the environment you're working in. And what is that environment like? I mean, what's the state of the of the ice there has it has it changed in in all of these many years since the endurance went down has, has global warming affected it has global warming affected it well and that's an interesting part of it as as well because they do assess the amount of ice um i mean and people are probably more familiar with what's happening in the arctic because a lot of there's been a lot of discussion about the arctic the plight of the polar bears and Antarctica is a bit different and they do take a look at the ice all around Antarctica, whether it's growing, the sea ice in particular, whether it's growing or shrinking year by year, they do these surveys. In the Weddell Sea, it's the one place in Antarctica where over about a 15-year period that they have this data, even a bit longer, the ice has been increasing. Not decreasing, but increasing. Okay, Now that's a total annual sum. You have to take a look at it at summer and various times. The interesting thing about it now is that the current expedition that's out there, the team that's out there, they had very good conditions in 2019, and everything looks like they're having very good conditions now. So it may be a situation where the summers are better. Well, I mean, their summers are our winters, but... Uh, the Austral summer is better, um, uh, whereas the winter, it, it, it grows. So statistically, even though we know that the ice has probably been gaining in the Weddell Sea, it appears that for at least a couple of recent years, um, they've had better conditions than they have had in the past. Hmm. So what will the process be? I mean, how, how would you actually try and try and find the vessel? Is um, using um, remote uh, remote submersibles. Yes, you need to. I mean, we find shipwrecks using sonars, uh, and there's a couple of different types. Uh, but the sonar is um, is a, is an acoustic device uh, that essentially paints pictures of the seabed in a three dimensional sort of uh, gives you a three dimensional image of objects on the seabed, and that's what we use to do the reconnaissance search, and it will actually detect a shipwreck of the size. Of endurance, and traditionally, these sonars we would operate in open water by towing them behind the ship on a long cable. Well, you can't tow a long cable when you're in ice, because the cable will get fouled, it could get damaged, it could even get um, uh, broken to the point you lose your instrument. So we use autonomous vehicles, and these are uh, the acronym we use is AUV, autonomous underwater vehicle, which is essentially a robotic vehicle that has computers. You can pre-program it with a search grid. It carries the sonars. It can carry cameras. It can carry lights. It has thrusters. Uh, it's steerable. So you can send it out like a drone. 
with no cable, just program it and send it out by itself. It can conduct a search pattern, come back to the ship, you download all this data, and then you take a look at it and see whether you have found your shipwreck. Um, the team that are out there now are using a hybrid model of that type of vehicle that also has a, uh, a, a, a fiber optic connection to it so that you can collect data, you can send telemetry both ways, and so you can monitor and somewhat control the search using that vehicle. Um, and it's not the same as a big, st heavy steel tow cable. It's a thin fiber optic thing, which by itself is a potential risk because it's much easier to break. So, you know, without going into a lot of the technicalities, that's the sort of basic way you would approach a search of uh, like of a for a wreck like endurance in the Weddell Sea. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah. It'll be wonderful if it's discovered, but I'm going to play devil's advocate slightly here. What happens next? What happens if it is discovered? Why does it, why does it matter? Well, first off, it'll be a remarkable thing to find um, that shipwreck in the Weddell Sea, given the conditions. Um, it will, there will be so many people that will be interested to see it. Um, this, the, the, and I think the key to that is, and again, this is, gets down to Shackleton and how he organized this expedition. Um, this isn't an unknown or forgotten part of history that's in the history books that people don't realize. There have been photographs of this ship uh, being, you know, seen for ages, because um, part of what Shackleton's expedition, how it was organized, was that he, he had this amazing 
photographer and videographer um, called Frank Hurley that took the most iconic photos of this ship. And it's one of the people won't even know that it's endurance, but they'll have seen that photograph of this three-masted bark in the ice with ice all over it, stuck with men all around it at various forms with at night, during the day, with dogs being wrecked um, for months. And those are some of the most important photographs of, um, of the heroic age. And so we all know this ship, even though we don't know this history. Now you're at, actually able to see that wreck on the seabed and connect what happened 100 years ago to those photographs. That's a remarkable... That's, that says a lot about our ability to uncover history today and shine new lights on it. Uh, Shackleton went out with the greatest technology available to him at that time. And in one sense, finding endurance allows not just the expedition, but the whole world to share in going full circle with the technology to bring it back to that time in 1915. It's a wonderful example also of the maritime world being able to engage people with the past, engage people with history. I think that there's so much power there in the in the storytelling and the, and the um the kind of just the the heroic adventuring of it all, both in the past and today, people breaking boundaries to, to try and find something. Exactly. And you know, they that when they took uh, Hurley's photographs they were um um exposed, they were on glass plates. Uh, that was the technology back then. They didn't use film. They had these glass plates. And when they had to get onto the the boats or get onto the ice because the ship had sunk, um, uh, Shackleton said to him, you know, go pick out the best 140. These these will be relatively heavy. And being light uh, weight to them was, was important because they were – uh, they had to be light and nimble on the ice to be able to sail and things like that. To the point that Shackleton took to be able to to be able to convince his men and to show him how important it was. He took a handful of gold sovereigns out of his hand and he threw them on the ice and said, "These are worthless to me, but the glass plates were more valuable because they were a record of a visual documentation of their expedition." And he told Hurley pick out the best 140 of them and the remainder leave on the ship. Don't take them all. We can't afford the weight, but take the best 140. Everybody asked me, will you find the glass plate? Will they find the glass plates on the shipwreck? And, and again, this is the genius of Shackleton. He knew that Hurley was so mad for these glass plates that unless he made him break them, Hurley would risk going back diving into the wreck before it actually sank, but it was going down in the water. It was flooded, still caught in the ice. He would dive in and take these glass plates out. But Shackleton made him sit down, take the plates that he didn't want, and actually physically break them to make sure wow. they couldn't, you know, that he wouldn't go back and get them. And, you know, mm. that is that is the genius of Shackleton. He... um. 
you know, really a man ahead of his time there, just seeing the understanding the power of the image. I mean, today it, it really makes sense. And what people are excited about now is not, not the write-ups of the discovery of this wreck. They want to see the pictures of it. It's all to do with understanding how just how powerful imagery is, is engaging people with the past. And for Shackleton, that was with his immediate past. This is what happened to us. But he knew that he could show one photograph and that would be more powerful. It would, it would engage more people than 45 pages of the, you know, the most detailed diary entries. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and to prove the point, um, this is one of the reasons why all this has been done. This is the 100th anniversary of Shackleton's death in 1922. His birthday was just uh, two days ago, a couple of days ago, or what would have been his birthday. Um, the Royal Geographical Society in London are having a current expedition, a new one, of Hurley's photographs. It's just open, the official, you know, sort of, um, you, you can go see it now, but there'll be an opening where people will come be invited um, uh, in, in an evening one time coming up in, in, in mid-March. Um, and, and so these photographs are, well, first off, the quality is amazing. Not just, um, not just the, the, the clarity of the photographs, but the quality of the lighting, the quality of the scenes, the, the stories that they tell. And, and, and this is why it's so important to me. It's not just the, 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 the written text that I've studied, but these photographs. And, and one photograph is particularly important in terms of the navigation because it shows the partnership between the expedition physicist, a guy named Reginald James, and Endurance's captain, Frank Worsley. They're the two that work together to actually improve their navigation so they knew it was accurate at the time. Because at one point in time, until they actually worked this out, they, they would have been off by tens of miles. We wouldn't have known where the ship had sunk. The expedition today would have almost no chance of being successful unless Reginald James and Frank Worsley had actually conducted these occultation timing readings in the summer before the ship sank. And and we have proof of that because we have this amazing photograph of the two men by the stern of endurance taken by Hurley uh, that documents it all. And 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 as you say, well what's what are the a thousand pictures, a thousand words? You you could write a hundred pages on what that picture meant in terms of what they were doing, the science behind it. The impact, the importance of it later on, um, and that one photograph captures it all. Yeah, it's it's very important, isn't it? Because people assume nowadays that it's very easy, obviously, to find out where you are by using GPS. But that simply doesn't translate in the past. So yes, we said they knew where their position was by sextant or theodolite, whatever it might be. Yeah. But that does. I mean, have you? <laughs> I've used the sextant and it's not easy. <laughs> it really, really isn't very easy. And there is yeah. a very large margin for error. Even the very best captains, and Shackleton took the best with him, the yeah. best navigators, but they could still get it wrong by a lot. Yeah. Well, this this was the first question I had. I mean, Worsley is famous for, um, uh, I mean, amongst every, oh, so many things, but he's really famous for being the captain and the navigator that... Um, commanded the, the, the lifeboat, the James Caird, uh, across, um, you know, the, the, the Straits to South Georgia. I, I mean, it's the worst journey in the world. Um, and, and 
he had to take his sights uh, during that time, uh, of which of the 14 days he was able to get three or four sights. He was doing it in the worst weather. They had hurricanes, but still he was able to get, be able to navigate that ship 800 nautical miles to what is essentially a dot on a chart, South Georgia. So that's, is he the greatest navigator in the world or did he get lucky? That was my first question when I started really researching him in 2003. And what I learned was that he was excellent. His, his, I have his logbook, I have his workbook. All of it has been analyzed. It's, it's a remarkable, remarkable document that talked to his, how meticulous he was, how thorough he was. But in, in all of that, saying all of that, he would have had no clue where he was in the Weddell Sea because you, you're relying not just on a sextant to be able to take your observation of the altitude of the sun or the stars. You need a accurate timepiece, a chronometer to know your, loc your time at that, at that kind. That's the other part of it. And their timepieces were an inaccurate because they, weren't, they had gone such a long period of time without being calibrated. They weren't calibrated. And that's what Reginald James, I believe, gave the idea to Worsley about how they could calibrate their chronometers. And together, the two men, over a period of three, three opportunities, they took 10 different occultation timings that allowed them to calibrate their chronometers. So the error that they were dealing with went down from tens of nautical miles to just a couple of nautical miles. And... And if we, they didn't do that, as I said, the position that we ha would have for Worsley now would be ac inaccurate on the order of tens of nautical miles. And with that level of inaccuracy, a search in the Weddell Sea, given the current conditions, wouldn't even be feasible. You'd have to spend months down there. And, and that's what's not feasible. Yeah. It does make you realise how Shackleton was so careful about putting people in his crew who excelled. What you were saying about Frank Hurley really struck a chord. Um, um, because there were those wonderful pictures of him clambering all over the rig. I mean, he, was shooting, he was shooting video footage up the rig with a huge video camera. I mean, they're not like a phone, these things. They're like incredibly cumbersome. It was very dangerous. But he, was, you know, he knew that if he made that extra effort, he could get that unique shot as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, and, and this, again, why, um, why people still are interested, why it's relevant today, why, why does it connect with people? Because, you know, of Shackleton and his 27 men, everybody has their own story connected to one individual, you know, whether you're, you know, Chippy McNish, the Scottish uh, carpenter who played an important role, but it was also a very divisive, difficult character. You've got Hurley with what you've just described. Reginald James, he's important to me, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this, is it, it's, I want to tell his story, maybe because I'm a scientist and he was a scientist. Other people like, you know, the, the stowaway, other people like, you know, uh, Frank Wilde, the, the, uh, the indomitable uh, second-in-command, Shackleton's right arm, not just his right hand, his right arm. <laughs> and on top of it all, you've got this great character in Shackleton. So you can have your choice of, 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 of any of the men who, who all contributed you know, to, to, to 
the success of this glorious failure or success of them all getting home alive. I mean, the, the the more you you say it's like that, it makes it realise it's it's a cast of a play, isn't it? I mean, they they really are so so full of character, all of them. I recently discovered someone found five crates of scotch buried under one of Shackleton's um, station huts, which he'd kind of built. Five cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, they, he was a man who liked his drink, definitely. Yeah, yeah, and today you can even buy a bottle of that Shackleton uh, Scotch whiskey which derives from the formula in those bottles. They sampled the, one of the bottles in the cases and created a limited edition, and they're still now producing a, a more open edition that is, that is you know, derived from, from that recipe. Um, so, yeah, you know, this is, you know, it is, it's one of these few stories a hundred years later that um, still catches people, catches your imagination, uh, informs you about the time, um, and um, just makes you sort of feel, you know, uh, in awe of what these men had lived through uh, and did it in, with such remarkable spirit. Because if you read their journals, most of the time they were really, really happy. Um all this was happening during World War One. They left basically on the day that war began, and um, and they're down there, you know, um, what, what you know, the naked, the naked soul of man. I think Shackleton calls it in his in his book, The South, um, experiencing, you know, this this, you know, this this remarkable environment, challenge challenging environment. Um, Always at risk, always at danger, but still thriving through it all, uh, and that and that's that's just incredible to even uh, uh, get your head wrapped around, considering the comforts that we go on down today. I mean, if Shackleton knew the 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 not just this comfort, the elegance that the people on the on the Algulis are <laughs> are sailing it today, he, he you know he he I don't think he'd be able to believe that. Yeah. Well, it's such a wonderful story, and thank you very much for sharing it with us today. And let's just hope they find that ship. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Sam. Very many thanks indeed for listening today. Now, if you are listening on an iPhone, do please take the time to review us in the podcast app. It's super easy. Just scroll down to the bottom, hit the number of stars, hopefully five, and tell the world what you think. This is hugely important in helping to spread the word about the podcast so we can do our job, which is to teach the world about the importance of the sea in our shared past. Please also take the time to check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page, which has some truly wonderful and innovative videos bringing the maritime world to life as never before. Please find us and follow us on social media, but above all, please join the Society for Nautical Research. It doesn't cost very much, but your contribution will go towards supporting this podcast, publishing the Mariner's Mirror's quarterly journal, and towards preserving our maritime past. You can join and find out about what we've been up to for more than a century at snr.org.uk.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.